It's time for the ninth annual, which I just ninth. checked. Ninth annual gear That's of the insane. year. Back once again, Jordan Drake. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. I've been doing this through three YouTube channels now, Tyler. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I went across uh, th this specific one across um, two podcasts as well. And yeah, I mean, I was I was listening to last. I tr I try to listen to a bit of the previous year before we come into each year and. Um, looking at the title, it says, you know, DP reviews, Jordan Drake, but obviously that's going to be different this year. You, uh, you just can't sit still. Yeah. No, we have, I mean, not by our own decision, <laughs> circumstances forced our hands a little bit. Uh, but yes, now with Petapixel and, uh, yeah, it's been great. Uh, but it's nice that this continues. Well, and the difference is you guys have a podcast now too, which you weren't doing previously. So we can get like a more regular long form thing coming from Chris and Jordan and, uh, or Jordan is or and Chris, as you as you would, yeah, um, either are. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been really nice. I mean, this is something you know we've just been doing short form videos for a long time, so it's nice to be able to just what you've been doing for years get a little more in depth conversation, something that is interesting but not essential. Usually, I would just leave that on the cutting room floor. So the podcasts are great for uh, diving in a little bit deeper. And this is also not my. Uh, only best and worst this year. We've done our usual drinking episode, which is not entertaining, but not the most coherent. Uh, our own podcast one, but that was voted on by the uh, the full staff of Petapixel, uh, those right. awards. So this time you're getting sober, unfiltered Jordan opinion today. This so is the, this is the be, good one is what you're telling me. This is the best, I, best I, I of I saved the year. it for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you and I also right want place. to mention to anybody watching this on, on my YouTube channel too, I, I haven't done any of the intros saying, hey, this is the Stallman podcast. Um, and if you didn't know, it's also, it's been running for a long time. Uh, I just moved it recently to the main YouTube channel. St I still feel like it's a bit of an experiment, but I feel like the reason for me to bring it up in this episode is partly I was looking at what you guys were doing over at Petapixel that it, it was on the main channel. I think from the start, you guys had it on both uh, the podcast and your regular videos on one channel. And YouTube have made some changes recently about how they structure things and seeing that it's working for you guys gave me that little boost of confidence to be like, okay, okay, I guess I'll try it. Um, so we'll, I mean, we'll see how it goes so far. You know, it's the, it means it's meant that the video is getting a few more views than usual. The reason that, you know, both of us would even hesitate to do this is that it kind of, it puts a bit of a drag on the average analytics, right? So, uh, th this matters to me, especially when I'm talking to the next sponsor and I need to, you know, explain to them like, you might notice that some of the videos I post are over an hour long, and those are different um, from the standard 10-minute video that I post. And so you can expect a different set of analytics. And they, just needing to have that conversation is like, I, I never, you know, I don't want that to have like an impact on how the channel is perceived or, or whatever. So, so far, I'm just taking the plunge and uh, hopefully it works yeah. out. Yeah, I mean, it is annoying in that. And also just looking at whenever you post a podcast and it's like people only watch 20% uh, on average because, of course, that's an hour and change um, can be a little bit disheartening. So I'd love to see them, you know, differentiate them even more in the analytics. But it, it used to be you were penalized for having long form content on YouTube. And I'm glad that's not the case anymore. Like are the podcast doing well, but it hasn't impacted our, you know, regular YouTube episodes at all. Well, and they've been slowly making more changes to how this works too, which makes me confident that they will continue to kind of trickle out changes of differentiating a standard video in a podcast. Because obviously podcasts are, they are now just a big thing on YouTube. And it's funny because like calling them podcasts anymore, it's like now they're just shows <laughs> in a way, right? Uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, we've been doing long enough that this is always going to be a podcast. So um, without any more insider baseball, let's get into it. Do you have the categories in front of you? I do. I've got all the categories, and we're going to kick it off uh, with best tech product, Tyler. Oh, boy. Well, for obvious reasons, I have a hard time with this one because there are, there are so many things out there. And the last two years, I picked MacBooks. Last year was the, Mac, uh, the M2 Air. Absolutely excellent computer that, for me, was you know, something I kind of used for travel. It was never my primary, but I know how good it can be for anybody that doesn't push their computer as far as we do. Um, and before that it was the M1 max. So there's part of me that's like, you know what? The M3 max is such a huge leap that I am tempted to choose it. Um, the regular M3 didn't have such a big jump over the M2, but this enormous performance gain that we've seen is 
notable and, and, and worth talking about. And so well, that's why I keep talking about it here on the podcast. But uh, in addition to that, um, a lot of the reason for that is that there's just some big GPU advancements on Apple's silicone chips. And we actually first saw that on the iPhone 15 Pro. And that's going to have to be my choice for this year, the 15 Pro. Um, I know some other places have chosen the Pro Max. I, I prefer the Pro, so that's the one I'm going to select. Yep, but the, the reason that I'm going to go with an iPhone this year instead of you know, usually I feel like, oh, I, I can't choose the iPhone, even though it's the piece of tech I use the absolute most. I wanted to go with it because it was the year that we really see kind of the, this full cycle of it becoming a more professional video creation tool. I've talked about it a lot already, but the addition of Apple Log, I don't know, it's, it's not necessarily going to change the world all at once, but it mean, it's like a meaningful change and a step towards Apple creating a more truly professional tool. And along with Apple Log is also just switching to USB-C. Uh, it has, I mean, it really opens things up to this not being such a like, you know, there's my phone, which is one product, and then all my other tech products that use a different port, those are separate from my phone. My phone now integrates with everything else that I use, my hard drives and my mics and my every accessory can now be plugged into it. And I, I just think that's been such a huge step forward in making the iPhone more of a multi-tool than it ever was before. So I'm finally doing it. I'm making the iPhone my tech product of the year. That was actually my runner up because uh, it is the first time I'm actually enjoying using my iPhone when I'm using it for B-roll or something like that. It used to always be like, I just, I need to grab this quickly. My camera's not set up. Now it's like, especially simultaneous with the 15, the Black Magic app really addressed most of my concerns when we did our 15 uh, Pro review. You know, it's like, oh, this thing will only record log to ProRes 422HQ. That makes absolutely no sense. And then that was addressed with the Black Magic app where you could record compressed 10 bit. Um, it is very, very flexible. Uh, but I do, it's, we don't have like accessories this year, but I'm just kind of thrilled with it. Last year, you mentioned to me on this very podcast the small rig V mount batteries and uh, the first ones that you could USB charge. And I was just like, oh, that's amazing. I could actually have one when I was traveling. Requested a sample from Small Rig, unbeknownst to me. Later, they would be like, hey, could you do a sponsored video for this? So now I feel like my hands are tied. I've made a sponsored video about this battery, but it's something that I love and I'm using constantly. I lost the power cable for my old uh, M1 MacBook Pro. So right now I'm running that, my camera and my sound mixer all off this little V-mount battery that's not attached to a V-mount. It's just sitting there. Um, so it's just a wonderful solution. But also I have a lot of V-mount stuff kicking around. And what's really refreshing is so often, you know, I'll get somewhere and be like, oh no, I don't have this cable or whatever. Almost my entire, uh, all the video equipment that I own is USB compatible now. Uh, I can power it off of it. So even if I don't have dedicated accessories, equipment, um, it's just like having a super powerful uh, USB power bank, uh, but that I can also use with all of my professional video equipment, like lights and stuff like that. And it's been a huge time saver. I'm going to be out uh, running around a park late at night, powering video lights and charging cameras with these batteries uh, in a couple nights here. So it's just opened up a lot of cool flexibility. And I thought about it as kind of my pick because I would have no idea this existed if I didn't come on this show. So thanks for the heads up. Yeah, no, I think it's been a great trend overall, making some of these professional tools a little more, wait, I was going to say generic. That's not the word more universal, you know, more adaptable, totally. more yep. like integrate this into your regular life. Because I, I think that there's been a history of that a lot of professional filmmaking tools, creative tools would be in a box of like, well, they use these kind of screws and they use these kind of ports and you need yeah. them all to be filmmaking tools to play nicely together. And that's just not how the world is working anymore. Another step we've seen in that direction that I haven't in integrated into my system so far is being able to plug iPads directly in through HDMI and use them as a real monitor. Um, I think it's just because I need to go pick up a good uh, like mounting solution for like my... Uh, iPad mini so I can put it on top of my camera uh, because all of a sudden it's going to get really exciting and that's um, but next year or the year after as soon as that happens with iPhones I mean I just feel like it's going to be a game changer once you can just put your iPhone on top of your camera yeah. uh, it like that th that'll be like such a big moment for 
just all of our tech being part of the same universe, same ecosystem, and and not segregating close. pro from casual. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then something else I want to like hint towards, which, um, you know, I can't, I can't feature, I'm not going to feature yet. I don't know how the release date of this episode and some other videos are going to time, but I am so close to releasing my first hardware product, which just before we started recording, I did show you Jordan. So you yeah. have one of, you are one of the absolute first people to see what I've been working on for the last at least six months. And I wish I kind of, I, I wanted it to be like, stocking stuffer i wanted it to be available for christmas but we just couldn't quite get there so um anyway it's, i just want i just want to hype it <laughs> yeah totally it's i get that peek behind the curtain is what nine years of doing this buys me but uh yeah i'm excited to see the response to it uh once we can actually unveil that so everybody yeah. get ready but for now let's move on and you know what i i, I have to spring something on you i realized we what? did we did miss a category um, in the text that I sent you ahead of time, we did not write down best app of the year. Oh no. Uh, which, I already uh, gave mine away though. Obviously. Okay. Well <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it officially. Okay. Officially. What is Jordan's app of the year? Yeah. It's the black magic app. That thing changes there everything. It rules and it's free. Like what, what, what? I don't know. Was well, there any there, competition? There's things, yeah. There's things to say about it though, because you know, why wasn't filmic pro in the same category last year, or the year before all the other years that it's been there? It has log. It has all these professional tools. Um, what was missing from Filmic Pro? And all, I'm saying all this in the year that, unfortunately, the, you know, the whole Filmic Pro staff was let go, which I, you know, is really unfortunate. I'm. It's the type of acquisition. It's the worst case of an acquisition. It's what we do not want to happen. So, you know, I'm really sorry for everybody over there. Um, you did a lot of great work for a long time, but um, still. Why were we not as enthusiastic about Filmic Pro? Well, I mean, the biggest one for me is it did have a log curve on it. Um, but what it was doing was what we're seeing with a lot of other cameras where it's just trying to like flatten out the contrast a little bit, give you a little more flexibility in post. Um, the reason that we saw a massive jump in the quality of the log when Apple officially released it is not because the sensor is so much better than what we had before. It's the same sensors that we had last year on the main camera. Uh, it's just because it was using more of the actual information coming off the sensor that I'm guessing Filmic didn't have access to. And it seems that Blackmagic does. I'm not seeing a quality difference between using the native app in Log and using the Blackmagic. Uh, so that's a big part of it. I just found the Log less useful previously. Um, and I, I mean, I loved the flexibility that Filmic offered. Like it was a powerful tool. Um, they did go uh, after the acquisition to um, monthly payments on it, which are always annoying with apps. Um, but more importantly than that, I did find the interface pretty cluttered. You know, it opened right. up a lot of possibility. And the Blackmagic app is actually quite intuitive, I find. The biggest one for me was the interface. Um, I, 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 every time I opened it, I was confused. Um, and I, I passed this along to the Filmic team as well, because, um, you know, I had chatted with them before. And again, I like I love how hard they worked at it, but it was things like when I would like touch and drag on the screen, I want to adjust exposure, but it would do digital zoom by default. Um, mm -hmm. I just didn't find ways to do things that are even basic in the default camera app, like exposure compensation. So, okay, without, you know, I, I don't want to complain about Filmic Pro. They did a, a great job at what they're aiming for. Things I like about Blackmagic, why I think it's a good choice, is that um, it works more like a traditional camera where the priority is like everything is auto as you start off and you can get more granular and just control things as much as you want. And speaking to what you were saying about log, the big difference now, which only Apple could do this, Filmic never had the option, was scraping away a lot of the processing in addition to flattening the image. So, you know, the flatness of the log curve from Filmic might have given us the same dynamic range, but it was still just as sharpened and sort of had that over-processed taste to it. So we weren't able to get that exacting, you know, traditional camera look that we can now get out of an iPhone 15 pro. So, um, that's, that's why we kind of have this big jump this year. So, you know, I, I think that's an excellent choice. Uh, good job. <laughs> Black magic. <laughs> uh, I have a different one. I have a totally different one to keep it, things interesting. It's not an app, but okay. Well, here, here's the app, uh, Adobe Photoshop, but more specifically, uh, generative fill. This is the year of generative fill. Mm. I mean, it has, just totally transformed the way that 
we edit and I bring it up every chance I get on the podcast. Cause I think it's one of those things that, it, you know, it came out and we all got used to it so quickly that I th- I, we didn't spend enough time talking about how crazy it is of a change for retouching. And at this moment, end of 2023, we're still in like a very early phase of it. It seems to be using the earliest versions of Firefly because what it generates is actually pretty, like if if it generates, say, a person from scratch, it looks terrible. Like it doesn't understand what things look like. It's a pretty rudimentary generative AI, but its ability to say, take wrinkles out of clothing, even if there's a pattern going on, um, you know, fill in complex backgrounds. There are so many times now where I'll just be using it to remove clutter that I wouldn't have even approached it in the past. I would have just, I would have not tried to take it out because I'm like, you know, I'd it's like too to, much hassle. Yep. yeah, but it's hassle and it might look fake. And generative fill does better than I could do on my best days. Um, and the most interesting things for it are not about generating new images, which this is something we talked about a lot last year was, you know, what, like AI had just arrived, you know, chat GPT was fresh and we just started seeing how good a fully generated image can be. None of that got too much more. I mean, it got better. It got interesting, but it didn't really get practical yet. I still don't have a use for generating all these images except for generative fill within Photoshop where I am using it all the time. It is remarkable. Yeah, exactly. I really think it's also a use case when I was seeing all these AI image generators and I'm just like, look, I'm not, you know, doing marketing photos or something like that where I can see a lot of photographers losing work and stuff Um, where this is something, yeah, practically like making a thumbnail. It's just a great option to have that quickly and readily available. And yeah, it just polishes your work and it still feels to me like your work. It doesn't feel like cheating in, in the same way. Does that yeah, make any it, sense? I don't yeah, know yeah, yeah. anymore. I, well, I understand. I mean, it's do the the goal. I hope for like what for for keeping photography photography even in this new AI era is that we are creating an idea. Like you know, it, if you want to use AI, you're creating an idealized version of what was effectively there in front of you. Right? You're not creating a scene that did not exist. You're not fictionalizing anything. It's just like. You know, uh, if I had waited 20 more seconds for people to walk out of the background, this is what it would have looked like. Um, And I'm totally comfortable with that for non-journalistic use cases of photography. There could be a whole episode about like the the ethics of like, when is it appropriate to use generative AI or remove, uh, you know, image editing? Like we're going to have to have a lot of those conversations. But uh, for like commercial use where you might have already done this with a healing brush already, we, it just was this huge shortcut to do it better and faster. Yeah, absolutely. And we should definitely maybe next year uh, talk about the content certification that's going to start rolling into all of our cameras. That is yes. really compelling to me now that I've actually used the software and yep. see how it works. Um, but it's a huge topic for probably another day. But uh, yeah, that's I, I, really going to come into play in 2024. I haven't used it yet, but what I've seen from your videos of the implementation, I'm like that's smart. It's the it's the right way to do it, and I think it's because I don't mind people knowing exactly how much editing I did to images because I'm not presenting them as news, right? I'm, I'm and I think if they were to see what I did change, they'd be like, oh, that that gives me exactly the context I needed to understand this. Like the sky was replaced. Fine. So, um, moving on. What's, what's our next oh, category? Oh, next up. Okay. So we are, this is great that you've got different categories. We're going to do best photo camera. And I'm going to treat this as if I wanted to take a picture, which camera yes. would I, I grab? Uh, and for that, I am going to give it to the Leica Q3, the most fun oh, I had taking pictures this shocking. year. Shocking. I did not think you would say that. So <laughs> why, why is this the year that you would choose a Leica? I mean, you, I don't... Th- I'm just guessing, but you're, you probably weren't even close to selecting a Leica in previous years. How did it suddenly show up? I mean, I, I, would, I think the Q2 was in my second or third place when that one first came out. But um, the big reason for it, um, moving to the much higher resolution sensor, uh, like that 28 millimeters, occasionally I would butt up against it. But with the new one, you know, if I want to shoot a 35, I'm still getting, I, I believe, like 42 megapixels, which is tons for that. Uh, the autofocus really improved on it. And the biggest one for me is just the EVF is gorgeous now, uh, where before, I mean, it was, you know, a little lower resolution. It was always a compromise, a little bit jerky. Uh, I love using an EVF. It's my favorite way to take pictures. And now you've got like a cutting edge electronic viewfinder. This was also one of the first cameras 
that we saw this year that added um, internal storage, which I think is something we should be seeing on every professional product moving forward. Is that true? Wait, can you confirm that? Oh, no. I believe the, the M11, M11 has internal. Yeah. Oh, okay. Scratch that last point. Because I just confirmed this the other day because it really bugs me because it's right. not that expensive. Oh. Like, it's not a pricey thing to add to an already very expensive camera. Give me 64 gigabytes. Give me anything. Just let me let me forget my memory card sometimes. Everything um, should have some. Oh, no. I'm glad yeah. you caught that. that uh, yeah, that's okay. weird. I'm still giving it my number one. Um, I just sure. I enjoy using that camera. And over, it's kind of amazing how well designed the original was in terms of like, it's a focus by wire lens. You know, it is an autofocus lens, but the manual focus on that just feels exactly like using classic manual optics. And there's nothing else that's replicated that feel, I don't think. Uh, so yeah, just the handling and everything on it. I think it's a, a big upgrade. And it finally has a tilt screen. And every camera that you're going to use as like street or especially for me, family photography, that was such a huge oversight. So having that address now, if there's a camera that I could buy for myself because I've done a good job, it would be that camera. Uh, you know, I do think you've done a good job, Jordan. Just oh, even if you don't camera. get a Q3, I think you've done a good job. Um, oh, well, so I think it's so interesting that you choose it too, because I've been having, you know, I've mentioned before, this is the first time I paid a lot of attention to Leica. I talked about it a lot the uh, time I came on the Petapixel podcast. We, we went over my experiences with the Leica Q uh, Type 116, a.k.a. the first Q. And uh, that's from 2015. And I borrowed Chris and Matt's and shot it for a month and a half or so and loved it. I mean, this is an old camera. And I thought I'd be like, oh, this feels old. It felt so good. It totally held up. And this isn't the new one. But, uh, you know... I would, there's, I think Leica has always had a problem of that. There's a lot of apologetics involved in like, you know, you're getting the Leica magic, but you, you know, you, you don't have autofocus or the autofocus isn't as good and the resolution's lower and the boot up time is slower and the battery life is worse. And the, you know, it's like, it's always this, like, it feels nice, but you're making a lot of compromises. So in the past, I think that it led for, since they went digital, Leica has had to sit in a place of being more of a, you know, a, like a luxury toy, like yeah. a, a thing that Boutique it's like, okay, exactly. If you enjoy the feel of it enough and you have the disposable income, like you can make it work for you and maybe that feels nice, but it's hard to argue that it's actually the better camera. This is the year that the Q3 is a AAA as good as anything out there camera like it will it's probably basically it's effectively the same sensor as like the well correct me the i think it's the a7 r5 4 r5 r4 yeah that 60 megapixel yeah. sony that's everywhere sigma's using it as well yeah there might be a tweak to it i don't know but it's it's basically as good as the best sony's right now which and the lens is also about as good as the best what anything right i mean it's a very good leica lens so you any image you take on it is a fully like a commercially viable can be put anywhere has all the dynamic range in the world incredible iso response and that was not the case with leica up until this year with the both the m11 and and i, th I think the q3 also gets it because of the autofocus too right you have good autofocus i I haven't, so I haven't used Q3 yet, but as far as I can tell, it's exactly what's coming out of the uh, S5 II from Lumix, pr probably, right? Very, like, very similar. Yeah, there's yeah. some differences there, and I definitely want to use that more. I did not get as much time as I wanted to uh, test that out. We're still theoretically saying we might do a full review in the future, but I'll wait for a big firmware update or something. But even then, just like grab shots on the street, occasionally I felt like the first Q, the Q2, just ha hesitated a little tiny bit. This was just like, click, boom, very, right. very fast. So no, uh, I, yeah, it felt like a cutting edge current camera. Yeah, which is, I'm just glad that there is a high-end camera that can compete like that. I don't want the only luxury cameras to be compromised because they weren't like that in the film days, right? If you went and bought Hasselblad or Leica, you were getting something like truly premium. So I, I think you're capturing my, that's my favorite camera to look at this year. It's like what I've watched the most reviews about like, uh, like Q3 is incredible, but I'm gonna make a different choice. Another camera I did not, I did not use. So you will have to verify if I am right in choosing this, but I, and I didn't even watch that many videos about it. I just know the specs. I know what it can do. And based on previous experiences, I'm going to choose the Sony a nine three. Is that a good yeah, choice? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm pushing it back just on the grounds of like, it's not hitting until 
2024. Oh, um, but yeah. that would certainly be oh. one of my candidates, except oh, they are sending out now production units. I'm supposed to be getting one maybe while we're recording this. Uh, so it you might know just what? make no, it no, under no, the wire. No, you're, no you're, you're right. I should choose something else because, you know, if it, it should qualify for next year, right? And if I'm choosing it for this year... I have to go with what I like, what my heart feels, which is the time that I spent with the Fuji GFX 102. It's it's got to be that because it's the other one that like I loved shooting with the Leica Q. I like felt good with it in my hands. I didn't want to put it down. Also, that GFX, I wanted to keep carrying it around. I did not want to give it back. Um, it made me want to take more photos. Like each photo was kind of exciting to see what came out of it. And the problem I always have with, especially with Sony more and more with Canon, I even feel this too, but it's just like, I don't, I'm not excited to shoot it. It feels like a job when I pick those up. I'm like, okay, this is work. I'm going to like operate my computer with a lens on the end. Now, um, there's just, you know, they, they do the, they do the job incredibly well, but there's also something to just the excitement of shooting with it. And, you know, the GFX, uh, it felt like it kind of had it all image quality was there. The autofocus was at a, a totally acceptable point, which has been a lot of the problem in this operation speed. It's not as good. It's not competitive with the Sony, but it's like, it's, it's not slowing me down anymore. I'm not missing focus so much that uh, it would be a problem. Um, so that's going to be it. I mean, I was a huge fan of the 100S, which is the same picture quality. Uh, adored that camera. That would have been my call. I think it was actually a couple of years yeah, ago. You pick, yeah, you did that. pick it once. And this that. is... This is definitely a nice improvement, especially like you pointed out on the autofocus. I still have a bit of a sour taste just because of how it was marketed, which I know is something we've kind of touched on, that they were like, double the readout speed. Um, and it was by dropping the bit depth, which any camera can do, and giving you substantially worse image quality. Um, and then a lot of the video functionality, everything on it had a compromise. But if you're going to go out and take pictures with it, just having more reliable autofocus and my favorite image quality period uh, together makes it the best medium format camera out there. So no, I think that's totally a valid choice. Yeah, they really pushed that video story, but I wouldn't choose this as my favorite hybrid camera because the video side, yeah. I mean, it's in, it's, it is interesting that you can do all this and it's a lot less compromised than it used to be on a large sensor, but the photos are what, that's the reason to buy this camera. Um, Absolutely. And the reason I, the, I've I said this before, the only reason I won't is the lens size. Honestly, like the body size and weight is pretty reasonable. I'd be fine carrying that around, but I would only want to use the pancake lenses. And there's only like one of those, maybe, two, yeah. so, you know, the, most of the lenses are just so enormous. I wouldn't end up bringing it with me as often as I'd like. So. Yeah, any zoom is going to be a big honking sucker. So that is, that is the downside for sure. Uh, let's. You touched on it. What is the best hybrid camera of the year? Uh, okay, interesting choice. I think people may not be surprised because um, there are some compromises in it. But I'm going to choose the Lumix S5 II, uh, or S5 IIx. It's got a little bit more, so let's go with that one. Although I, every time I'm talking about them, I think everybody should think of them as pretty interchangeable. Although I'm using, because I have both still on this like long-term Lumix uh, Panasonic loaner thing. Um, and the regular one is enough. So the reason this is a strange choice is because it's missing some very key features that are available other places. And th that is, you know, not uncropped slow motion. Um, that is like a real omission and does drive me a bit crazy. So... This award is not going for it being the absolute best you can buy, but the value in terms of price and the other video-centric qualities that are um, available in it that aren't available in some other cameras. It's And it's just the one I've been using. I've been using it all year. Like I've been leaving my R5 at home way more often in favor of just shooting on the Lumix, which is really weird. I mean, it's less than half the megapixels. Um, the autofocus isn't quite there as much, but it's just so much smaller of a body. Um, I love the interface. I just like, I enjoy the way that it works. I, I really like the lens selection. All of the lenses are smaller except for the 2470, which I don't have, but that 2470 2.8 is enormous, but generally yeah, it's, it's like me right way... now. And my tripod is just flexing, bending. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's giant, but the 24 to 105 is much more comfortable. And all the prime lenses are like great sizes. They all match. I've talked about this camera so much. It just seems like an obvious choice. I think the uh, S one H two, whenever that's announced, will destroy this. I mean, it's going to be way, that's going to be a, a lot more exciting, but you know what? Lumix is, is back in the running and I've really enjoyed shooting with it. 
Yeah, I mean, I love that series too. I really struggled with this category uh, because I do think those are great hybrid cameras. You mentioned the cropping, but this same year, Panasonic brought out the G9 II, where you don't have the cropping limitation if that's essential in exchange for a smaller sensor size and a hit in your dynamic range there. But I'm going to go with the number one being the Nikon Z8, because if I was going out to go take pictures, this would be... Probably, if I didn't have a Leica Q3 handy, my top choice. Uh, I absolutely love the photo-taking experience with that. Stacked sensor, no mechanical shutter. But it's also one of my favorite video cameras. It's the only one where I could say there is no real compromise. I love the S5 II, S5 IIx. But if I were going out to take pictures, I want a little more resolution. I want a little better autofocus. I don't worry about that with the Z8. And we've shot a bunch of episodes on that camera, not because I was reviewing Nikon, but because I was like, hey, I love using that camera uh, and have really enjoyed the shooting experience with it. And it keeps getting better. Their firmware program, it's really Panasonic and Nikon are the best right now for real meaningful upgrades coming through firmware. Uh, and yeah, the Z8 has been receiving those. So uh, that's my hybrid option. You could tackle any job. I don't care if it's like show up at a movie set or go shoot sports. It'll do it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, prob you're probably right in terms of that being the best. I just still haven't tried Nikon in years and years. I should probably fix that some year. It's such a big blank spot for me. But um, yeah, yeah, that that is a better camera than the S5 II. It's just also, what is the price difference? Do you know? Oh, it's it's substantially more. It's four thousand US maybe. as opposed to yeah. two thousand. Yeah, so exactly it, yeah. double. So, um, you know, it, I'm kind of select. I'm grading mine on a bit of a scale. Like this value is just crazy. Um, whereas you're saying, yeah, that's actually the best best. Um, what's our next category? Our next category is best video camera, which all of these hybrid options are also up in consideration for it. Yeah. So, so I'm not I picked the. Mine. I picked the S52X when we did our okay. um, Petapixel reviews and our best and worst, but just under the gun, and it's amazing the embargo just lifted so I can actually talk about it. Uh, I just got the Ronin 4D 8K, and oh, holy hell, this thing rules. It is right. great. So my biggest issue with the uh, the 6K version of this, it's basically, if you don't know, it's a gimbal with a, cam a full-frame camera attached to it. Um, and what's cool is it's four like the axes. Osmo. Yeah, uh, except unlike the Osmo, it actually has the fourth axis spring like that will negate any vertical movement as well. So you can sprint with this, and it's perfectly smooth. Um, but the previous 6K version was that same sensor that we've seen in the S52X and Sony a7 III. It's been you know a little long in the tooth, and it has that crop whenever you want to shoot 4K. Where here we've got the Canon R5C sensor. Uh, so this is getting you a 4K, even 8K 60. Uh, uncropped with that sensor. It does that same oversampled mode, but obviously overheating is not a problem. This has a fan on it uh, and 4K 120. So I'm not really taking a hit in terms of any of my record modes and it's attached to the most stable platform I've ever used. Outside of that, uh, I haven't really talked on it on this show, it has the most innovative focusing tools that I've seen in a decade. Uh, they have something where called the... Um, focus waveform, which gives you an overhead view of your scene. And as you focus forward and back, you see a line move across like a video game as to what your depth of field is currently covering. It's so easy to visualize things. You can make sure you're focused on the front of someone instead of the middle of their head because you can actually see the circle. Uh, and it has a focus ring on it, which works like just a beautiful follow focus mechanical one when you're spinning it. But then let's say I want to change my aperture with it. I can have it do it smoothly or in click stops. It'll actually, the haptic feedback on it'll change and it'll cycle through with hard stops. Same if I want to switch my neutral density filter with it. It'll get clicky on me and then switch back to focus. It's back and beautiful and smooth. It just feels amazing. And I can put it on autofocus and feel the focus working underneath my thumb. So if I'm not moving and my subject's not moving and I feel that wheel going, I know it's about to make a mistake, put my thumb on it, stop it, it's not going to move. It just, it feels like I've got an actual like follow focus assistant working with me and we're a team. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's difficult to under like explain, but once you've used it, I just want this functionality on every camera and 
the 4D original came out two years ago, and I haven't seen a single one of these functions actually added to a dedicated camera. So I love it. It's a joy when it shows up. It's very heavy, but I don't care. I just have a blast shooting on the street with this thing. And uh, I'm going to go do a little filmmaking with it on that same uh, shoot where I'm going to be using that small rig battery here in a couple days. So uh, it, it kills I it. I love it. I think that's an excellent choice. I mean, obviously, I haven't used one either. Didn't put out a video. Haven't, haven't tested it. I always have less variety than you in the air. But um, from what I've seen, yeah, I mean, the sensor seems to be there. Everything you're mentioning, just if there was a category of most innovative camera, it would also have to win. Um, you know, all, all that's going to hold it back really is the kind of weird form factor because I think it is incredibly versatile. There's just a lot less people that are willing to take that chance, right? But it does look like... With that level of image quality, based on Cine D's tests, like it's rivaling the Alexa Mini LF, um, th this is a crazy camera. I'm not going to choose it because you just did, um, although you're probably right about it being the best. I just want to give um, give my vote to the Komodo X, which did come out this year as well, especially because I, I, I really lusted after it all year and kept trying to talk myself into that I needed it and haven't quite got there yet. Um, partly because we've just shot less of that type of work this year. We've shot so much more vertical first mobile, even, you know, commercial jobs. So it has not at all been the priority. My C70 is still holding up so well that it's hard to justify, but that, yeah, I mean, the Komodo X is really showing that like red is here in the modern age. Um, they're going to have to keep pushing because everybody else is doing such a great job. You know, now we've seen global shutter on the Sony as well. But there's still something to the red approach to image creation that I think sets it apart from what Sony, what, what all the hybrid brands are doing. You know, red and Alexa, um, or red and Ari, sorry, just make it so much easier to acquire an image that looks like a movie. <laughs> like the pipe, the image pipeline is sort of presented to you. Like follow steps one, two, three in your video will look like the movies. And I just find we aren't there with anything else, you know, with, with the best Canons and the best Sony's and the best Lumix, you need to go find a great LUT, which I don't know, you can go find my LUTs if you want, but that you have to find one that like fits your taste and doesn't have any issues. And then it, that might only get you to a clean look, but to get something more cinematic, you have to pursue it even further. And I don't think it should be this um, homegrown effort to get colors looking good. It should just this this should be the easiest thing in the world from a video camera and red is still the uh you know it's like the lowest priced camera that like gets you there relatively quickly i think um there's i don't know i, I don't have that much more to say about it because i also didn't use one i just love the images coming out of it and the price is right and yeah komodo X. yeah i think this is this is the year i would love to get a red in for testing we never have done that even though i've shot with them uh fair amount so uh, and, i'm hoping to it's the year that red went extremely standard, including with the, the yes. V Raptor as well. That's a yeah. huge moment for red. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been joking about how proprietary they are for years, uh, especially with like media, batteries, that kind of stuff. Uh, this is this is something that we're gonna have to see going forward because they are getting squeezed on all sides right now. And just uh, one thing, I just want to throw out: even with other camera manufacturers having good compressed raw recording formats now, especially now that it looks like red lost that lawsuit or they settled and there's some compromise going on there they just have the best raw workflow bar none so if you want to shoot raw video i think red is still the best bet if you're going to be doing that all the time i think you're right okay what's next oh man i got distracted well i sp sprung it on you on purpose so good at just that. just to see oh. you flustered absolutely so um Best podcast. I'm going to let you take the lead on this, Tyler. Oh, good question. Let me look at my list. <laughs> I sprung it on you and then mine's not in front of me. Okay. Um, my choice is going to be one that I started listening to relatively recently, but it's not a new podcast and it's The Rest is History. It's a history podcast. Mm. And, you know, I have yeah. a few different playlists in my podcast app of, you know, I've got like my tech and my news and I added a educational tab recently just to force myself not to spend so much time listening to the news really so uh you know it's i mean it's just it's 
it's exactly what you'd imagine. I recently enjoyed a Lord of the Rings episode, which taught me a, a lot that I didn't know about J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, the history of Baghdad, when I was playing... It, this was interesting because when Assassin's Creed Mirage came out, they did a series of episodes all about Baghdad because of a video game. And I'm like, this is great. Like, learning the real history based on the game I'm going to be playing. Um, I've absolutely been enjoying it. I think it's very easy to recommend to absolutely everyone. And I want to do a runner-up that's harder to recommend because you have to pay for it. And I've recommended uh, some of these before, but it is uh, Sharp Tech, which is from Ben Thompson, who oh. I think, which I don't remember what I recommended last year, but also that you have to pay. Yeah. Uh, what's the name of the one I recommended last year? But oh, um, it it is for, for pay. And it's like $125 a year, I think is what I pay to get all of his shows. But this one is biweekly, meaning twice a week, which is a lot. But as I always say, I feel like there's there's only a few people that have really excellent and, and like unique perspectives about tech that, you know, they are the ones originating the idea that they're presenting and it's really well articulated and well thought through and they could defend it deeply. And Ben Thompson's one of the few people doing it. So um I've just absolutely found it worth paying for. Harder to recommend, costs quite a bit of money. So there's two. Yeah, I mean, this year I've finally started paying for, even if they are free, uh, like doing Patreon and things like that for some of the podcasts. Because, I mean, it's just such a huge source of entertainment and information. I think you really need to reward people for that, uh, you know. Um, but I'm actually going to go with um, the Big Picture podcast, uh, which is uh, a movie podcast. I latched onto it because one of the hosts uh, showed up on my favorite podcast, Blank Check, that I've talked about on here before. Um, but yeah, it's Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins. They're two film critics. And I just find it's a very interesting dynamic as opposed to a bunch of dudes sitting around talking about movies. I think Amanda brings a really kind of interesting um, dynamic to it in terms of like, uh, you know, the, the best example of it was the Barbie Oppenheimer week where you've got the dude who's a huge Nolan bro, uh, as I know you are, and I am as well. Like, we sure. love our Nolan. Um, but then her excitement about Barbie, which is a movie I also love, but brought it from a very different, like, cultural perspective. It's, uh, yeah, really funny, uh, great. And I love that they do very regular rankings of, like, okay, this week we're going to talk about this actor's new movie, but also we're going to rank all of their performances start to finish in real time on the microphone and argue about it and stuff like that, uh, which is a lot of fun. So it's become kind of my favorite just listening to the back catalog movie podcast right now. If you're into that, I can't recommend it enough. Really nice. solid. Well, I've picked up a few movie podcasts from you in the past, so I definitely think the big picture sounds like it's worth checking out. And um, quick, quick note. Did you spot that uh, script notes just came out with an episode with Christopher Nolan? I just saw it this morning. No, I haven't yet. Did not listen. Guess yeah. Okay. That, Long guess form interview with Nolan. I never see that happen. So uh, I guess another recommendation, but we didn't, <laughs> this is, this is before we listened to it. Um, <laughs> what's, what's after podcast? Uh, it would make sense for us to roll right through to best movie. Good segue. Tied. Yeah. Oh man. I crushed it. Right. Okay. I just want to say, first of all, this has been a killer year for movies. Uh, I think it, you know, post pandemic, a lot of stuff gets a bad rap, but I just think there's been an amazing, not only like big, you know, blockbuster stuff, but just cool, interesting genre films. So this was a really tough one for me to pick. I'm, like I mentioned, Barbie and Oppenheimer would both be on my top five. But, uh, and then I just saw The Holdovers, the new Paul Giamatti uh, film. I, want, which I is, wanted to see that before this, just in case it yeah. made the list, but I didn't get to it. It's, uh, it's a really nice, like just a throwback 70s character study. Vaguely feel-goodish, but still has a nice little bit of an edge to it. But my pick for favorite movie, the one I responded to most this year, is uh, A24's Past Lives. Have you heard about this? I have not. I just know this what an A24 movie's like. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a quick credential for like, oh, this is going to be a little bit quirky, a little bit different, but still accessible. And that's this one uh, got a ton of buzz early in the year, but I feel like kind of got swallowed up a little bit since we've had so many big releases from big directors. Um, but it's a really interesting story of like a Korean girl and boy who had a bit of a crush on each other when they lived in Korea. She moves to Canada and then eventually to New York, moves on with her life. But um when they're both 24, they fall 
that they get in touch again through the internet. And then another 12 years after that, when they're 36, they actually meet in New York uh, by chance for the first time. And it definitely has a bit of an autobiographical feel to it. Uh, I believe something similar happened to the director. But uh, it is so beautifully shot and has one of the best, like most tense endings to a movie um, that uh, I've seen all year. And it's it's a very like, you know, not an action movie, anything like that. It is an emotionally tense thing when they do meet up with each other and they're alone for the first time since they were 12 years old um, and how that plays out and the camera work and everything is super compelling. It's very funny. It's an easy watch. Um, it's yeah, insanely well acted. And I just, I was incredibly moved by it. So I, I loved a lot of movies. This was a really tough category, but that's my number one. I had to vote yeah. with my heart. I did. I Not saw with some who had the it. biggest film negative. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, I saw some clips of it on uh, TikTok. is actually how I'm familiar with it as you're describing it. But, um, I'll add it to the list though. I, I don't know if I would have watched it otherwise, but if it's your number one, then it's worth it. And, um, you know, I, I love Nolan. I'm a Nolan bro. Um, but yeah. I wouldn't even, I don't feel like Oppenheimer's on my top five. I just like, really, I, it, it was good. It's a good movie. People should watch it, but it's like, it just kind of, I don't think about it. Like I don't, the scenes don't replay in my mind. I won't watch it again. I don't know. It just didn't really stick, but that's just me. I thought it was really interesting to see Nolan getting just a, like a little bit almost surreal. He's such a cerebral filmmaker. I think the way that they like put you into Oppenheimer's head visually is something that I would never expect from Nolan. Nolan is like the, this is how space travel works and what it would look right. like kind of guy. Well, this, and I mean, I only say uh, this felt very out, different. Out I think because I know people would be mad at me for, for, for disliking a well-loved movie. I mean, everybody else liked it a lot, so. Yeah, I dug it. Um, but what's your number one? Well, my number one, um, I, I didn't have this feeling of that this year was amazing, actually. I can think of the movies I went to in theater. I was, like, excited to go to theater as often as I could. Um, but I, I, last year had more movies just, like, clamoring for my number one that I, I couldn't choose. This year's, it wasn't quite like that, but I do have one that I absolutely loved and stood out, and that was Blackberry. Probably yeah. also underviewed. I'm sure a lot of people are barely aware of it. Uh, other than, If you're in the tech community, you probably heard about it because you might have had a Blackberry and you care about the story. But uh, I was just so surprised that it was like very good. Uh, first of all, because it's Canadian, f funded by the CBC. Not many, I mean, sorry, Canada, <laughs> where I live, but there's not that many great movies that come out of Canada on a regular basis. Like we don't have the best filmmaking reputation. And this was wonderful. It was such a great film, well acted, well written, um, and a great story. I only, I never had a Blackberry and I only vaguely knew that, yeah, this is a Canadian company, but watching it play out and, you know, their first offices over a shopper's drug mart, is just this, it, there's all these details that bring it home to like, like, this is such a Canadian story and amazing the success they were able to find from a small town in Ontario. Um, yeah. Blackberry. It's yeah. great. And it has a real like sense of aware, like a great sense of humor uh, throughout it. I think it's the best like tech movie since the social network. I feel like so many yeah. people have been trying to get that same vibe. This actually really does come close to that in terms of just being, it, it's not, it doesn't feel like a biopic at all. It's just thoroughly entertaining. That's a great yeah. choice. I did yeah, that. I, 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 I totally agree about that since the social network thing. I mean, I much prefer this over any of the Steve Jobs films since then. Um, just the most, like, they get what they're talking about, tell the story well, and it's a great film. So, yeah, it hit everything. And it, good has, jo a, good job, it has a really complete arc. Yes. And I do want to say, you say, not good films from Canada. Quebec makes great films. It's English-speaking Canada that's doing that a terrible is very job. Li that is very likely true. Yeah. Um, next up, we got, well, should I spoil it? Because I already have my phone in front of me. This is the challenge no, of the no, IQ you. Oh, you got it. Yeah. All right. Best book, <laughs> Tyler. Best book. I do have one. I definitely have a, a best book. I really enjoyed the book Generations by Gene Twenge, uh, T-W-E-N-G-E. And it's basically breaking down all the data about the differences between all of the current living generations. Um, so that would start with the silent generation, which um, would be uh, like Joe Biden would be a part of that, you know, the the eldest yeah. people we have around right now that were sort of born at the beginning of you know World War One, and moving into uh, the what's after that, the greatest generation, 
and then yeah. the baby boomers, then the boomers, and then Gen X, and then, then I don't X, know if I'm yeah. missing anybody, and then millennials, and then Gen Z, and then you know Gen Alpha or or whatever they come to be called afterwards. And obviously, there's we all sit around having conversations all the time, but like, can you believe that Gen Z are like this, or the boomers did that again? But this is so much data based on like you know the changes in birth rates, changes in marriage rates, changes in political voting patterns, like. How have all of these generations acted at the same period, um, trying to declutter as much of that data noise as possible and understand like what is what is likely um, factors of the era, like just that this happened in this period of time versus that group of people seems to carry those opinions forward. It seems to be something that becomes a cultural difference for people of that age. And there are so many of them that I find very interesting, especially, I mean, the Gen Z is uh, maybe the, the most fascinating to me because it's just so, um, the changes are happening so quickly now, right? Like there have just been such large structural changes, kind of seeing how that's manifesting is really interesting. So yeah, Generations, good book. I definitely want to check. That sounds so up my alley. It's crazy. Uh, I will definitely be checking that out. And to just clarify, this is in a North American context, not a, not globally, not European, not in Africa or Asia. This is primarily what's happening in America. I would love to know, like a follow-up uh, going global would be really interesting to see how that compares. Yeah, to for sure. She, she writes about it right, as well. Her book before, which was, a, I think, was a pretty big success, was called iGen and was specifically about Gen Z. And this is before they were called Gen Z. So uh, she's written about this a few times. Cool. Yeah, I'm totally going to check that out. Um, my pick for book of the year is Opposable Thumbs by Matt Singer. Uh, and this is the story of Siskel and Ebert, um, oh, which is I'm, I'm fascinating. So I'm a huge Ebert fan. He's probably responsible for my love in, of movies at all. I mean, I grew up on a farm where the only thing vaguely film related was we had Siskel and Ebert at the movies when I was growing up. And I wouldn't see any of these movies because we had a single screen in Strathmore that would only play the biggest blockbusters. But uh, I just by it was so entertaining watching these two men argue that it made me kind of fall in love with film because I wanted to know what their opinions were based on and wound up tracking down a lot of these. And later in life, uh, after he lost his voice uh, to throat cancer, Ebert's writing, I think, is just some of the best. He essentially started a blog, but it was whatever he was interested in at that point, often not about movies, uh, some of the best I would say writing period of the last 20 years. Um, so I was a huge fan, but I didn't know much of the background of Siskel and Ebert and how much these two actually hated each other. When this thing got started, they wrote for two rival newspapers. They were extremely competitive. One of them had a Pulitzer, one of them didn't. And the way they would sabotage each other, like screwing up each other's flights to different film because uh, they had the same production company, but they would, yeah, rebook flights so they couldn't get to film festivals and get the right scoops uh, is just really revealing. Like I always joke about Chris and I being the Siskel and Ebert of camera reviewers. And this book uh, really reminded me like we actually have a very good relationship uh, compared to who we're referencing there because uh, yeah, I, it's amazing how their work dynamic could even function at all. And that later in life, they did actually become quite close. Like it's like a married couple that hated each other. And then in their eighties, we're suddenly like, ah, you're not so bad. Uh, it's Did I really hear this author read. on uh, blank check recently? Uh, Cause this, this sounds a little he's familiar. Been, yeah. He's been on a few times. Um, yeah. Matt Singer. Yeah. I, I th yeah. believe he's a film critic as well, but uh, nice. yeah, that's where I found out about this book and best read I've hit up all year. So check it out. Yeah. And I mean, if anybody never was interested in Siskel and Ebert, uh, which, you know, I was too, but definitely anybody that's younger won't have even probably come across them. But what's also so valuable about them that I think is missing often now is the discussion about what critique as a profession even is. Like, how do yes. you, what's, what's worthwhile in judging an art form? Like, how do you discuss a film? Like, yes. especially a bad, not a bad film, but like a film that is not meant for you. How do you talk about a kid's film and decide whether it was successful or not? And they would get into that in a way that um, you know, everybody has hot takes now. There's no shortage of opinions. We're doing it now. Everybody has an opinion. But how? What's a reasonable way to come to that opinion, and how do you present it in a, in a fair way to the audience? And they approach that um, kind of more than than most uh, critical entertainment would.
Yeah, they really disagreed about it. You know, Siskel would say like, oh, you know, the new art house movie is better than this children's film, where Ebert was much more like, no, you have to compare it to other, you know, films directed at the same audience. Uh, and that led to a lot of the best blowups where, you know, they're comparing uh, Kubrick films to the latest Benji and Ebert's giving thumbs up to the Benji and thumbs down to the Kubrick, you know, um, because he was like, look, the Benji does what it's a dog movie is supposed to do better than this Kubrick film. It's amazing. Uh, and also as like, as a sidebar, just go on to YouTube and look for Siskel and Ebert arguments is a great way to just kill a night. <laughs> yeah, I've you watched know, a few. If, oh, they're so great. Yeah. Cause they're all bite-sized, like little four minute masterclasses and disagreement. So check that out. Next up. That's it, Tyler. That was the last topic. No, it wasn't. Oh, There's games. No, oh, no. More. There's games. And I know you played a game this year. This is the worst category um, introductions. I guess that's what we call it. I've ever done. Uh, yeah, terrible it keeps, work. It keeps things interesting. Totally. Um, no, you say so, it's the worst, but you should go re-listen to last year. It was pretty bad, too. Okay. But that, that's why it's an annual tradition. At least I'm consistent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bring me back every year to see if I'm any better at it. No, absolutely not. Um yeah, this is a category I had to sit out on for the first seven years of the podcast, basically, because I wasn't playing video games. Oh, no, you uh, had a few. But yeah, okay. Uh, a couple, yeah. But since then, um, we got a Switch for my kid, and I've started again. And last year, I said, oh, man, I finally like tried that Breath of the Wild Zelda game, and that blew my mind. And this year, obviously, the follow-up Tears of the Kingdom came out. I think it's a better game than Breath of the Wild, so it's my clear winner. Uh, I just had... it. it, it I think I finished it maybe a month ago and it came out in May. So I took my time, but I don't play a ton of video games, but I'm I just amazed found, you finished it. Yeah. I, I just found it very involving. I think what they did where all of the just random characters that seemed meaningless in the first game actually have real character arcs this time. Uh, and the construction side of it is really cool. It's nice to be able to approach a puzzle from 17 different angles that are all equally valid. Uh, I think I made the comparison to like, you know, Half-Life 2 as a game where you would just use logic to solve any puzzles that you found yourself in. Same thing applies to this. Uh, you certainly don't have to be like, step on this switch and run over here, you know, in under 10 seconds to get through the door. It's a lot more based on real world um, and logic. And I think it's very satisfying as a result. So well, uh, my, my game of the year. Congratulations. I'm very excited for you having played, <laughs> having played a game. A video and, yeah, game. You're, you're able to make a completely contemporary recommendation that is still available in stores and people are still playing now. Um, I, I don't know if I've made this, I've said this on Twitter. I don't know if I said it here, but I just couldn't get into tears of the kingdom. Um, I, but I, I couldn't get that taken. I couldn't get you that and far. Gerald. The, it just is so long and I don't want to, I never want to get lost in a video game. That's always what breaks it for me is like, as soon as I spend any time not knowing what to do next, I'm like, okay, I don't have time to figure this out. I'm going to, I'm going to go play a different game. So, um, I'm super glad you enjoyed it, though. I just, I, I couldn't do it. But uh, I, I have a, as usual, I try to keep my recommendations made for um, people that have not that much time to play. And, you know, I, I think what I got to do an honorable mention here of God of War, which did not come out this year. That's why it's honorable mention. But I played both of them. And I'm so behind on not having played those. I don't know why I didn't play them when they came out. Everybody told me I should just like uncharted, which I talked a lot about as well. Um, you know, I played all of those late played God of war late, but I should not have waited, man. Those are just, they, they have set the benchmark for me. And ever since I, any games I'm playing and especially like watching Anya playing Assassin's Creed right now, I'm just like the camera work in every other game is so sloppy. The dialogue yeah. is so poorly written. The voice acting is so, like oh like everything is executed so incredibly well in god of war i just it's shocking and there's only there are a few other games that are done that well you know things like last of us and uncharted are just like super tightly precisely crafted but it's not common so just want to throw out there that was that was my best best gaming experience of the year but the best game of 2023 because it actually came out is for me it's got to be spider-man 2 it is the controls are so incredibly tight on Spider-Man, the best traversal in any game. Um, I mean, I'm still, it, I, I may platinum it, which I've never done to anything. I'm really completing everything because 
it is just so fun to swing through the city. Like it is, it feels so responsive and it's so, uh, this similar feeling of Tony Hawk of like, you subtly get a little better at the controls all throughout the game and your movement becomes smoother and you just look so cool doing it. So, um, and then also it has just like a really, uh, well-told tightly crafted story, great voice acting. Um, it just is really this complete package that speaks exactly to the type of, single player game that that i love to see so spider-man 2 that's my game of the year i mean i i still don't have a playstation but i'm very curious because the i think it was on the playstation 2 the spider-man 2 the first time they let you swing through the city uh even though you weren't actually connecting yeah. the videos i i loved that uh as that was called experience. like spider so sure. that was like spider-man the movie 2 right <laughs> something like that yeah absolutely yeah. um so the previous two, uh, but yeah, I, I think maybe I might have to jump on the, uh, the PlayStation and catch up because same thing, God of War. I loved the first two for, again, I think that was PlayStation two. You can really see the exact moment I fell off the video game, uh, bandwagon, but, um, but yeah, time to dip back in. Cause I've had a really good time with the switch this year. Nice. Yeah. Um, one more thing. There's a great video on YouTube with the, one of the developers from that original Spider-Man two playing the modern spider-man for the first time and just like describing all the challenges they had back then because the funny thing is when i remember playing that original spider-man 2 for ps2 in my mind it was basically the same as what i'm playing now like oh yeah there's a fully realized new york city it's all there and then you go back and look at the videos it's like oh there's just some skyscrapers above the cloud line and yeah <laughs> they're all big boxes and there is zero detail uh but you know, our imaginations were time. so much more vivid back yes, then, Tyler. Exactly. That was that was the beauty of it. Oh boy! Well, I don't know. Next year, once all our games are procedurally generated, uh, we won't have to use our imaginations at all. It's going to be great. Perfect. Um, anything to add? What any like what what else about twenty twenty three? This was obviously a big year for you. you. Guys moved over to Petapixel. Any final thoughts? Yeah, this will always be one of the most jarring years of my entire life, uh, but one where like I am coming into 2024 incredibly grateful because I did, you know, last year in April, I had no idea where I would be at this point. Um, so just having the rug pulled out and told to, you know, go find a new job. But also, I'm just so thankful that DP Review is still going. Like I, I was really concerned for all those people there who are incredible at what they do and i still get to see them whenever i'm on a press event i uh, just saw them uh recently for the sony launch so it's it's great everything kind of worked out the best way possible for everyone involved so hopefully that's uh yeah the case for more of our industry going forward because it's been a rough stretch well, here for a lot of so my how colleagues about, how about also a health check on the the camera industry not so much the camera journalism industry but just you know, I spend at least a third of the time on the channel talking about cameras. Are people still buying cameras? Are they going to keep uh, similar buying patterns next year? Like, what do you see happening lately and where do you think things are going to go? Well, I, fortunately, um, my other half, Evelyn, is uh, also employed by the Camera Store here in Calgary. Uh, she's actually one of the co-hosts there as well on the Camera Store TV, if you want to check that out. But uh, basically, you know, I'm not getting all the financials, but the camera store is doing quite healthy business now you'd expect it would just be a constant slowdown uh because that's a lot of the numbers that we see out there but the people who are into it are still very into it what has stopped is we just had a kid now we have to buy a dslr and i think that led to and then no one used those cameras led to unrealistic expectations of you know how the photography business was going to go i feel like we're getting back to you know in the 70s and 80s there was one person in every family who was into photography they were like the family photographer and now i feel like that extends to like they're the family video baker who will you know grab a mirrorless camera and cut some stuff together on final cut um and I, as that is absolutely sustainable as a business. We might not see as much R&D in that. We might not see the same crazy advancements every year. But uh, I think it's, I mean, everybody seems to be optimistic. There was a lot of doom and gloom, especially like Nikon. A lot of people thought they might go under. Um, and now they're, they brought out really compelling products. They're killing it. Um, we're seeing, like looking at this year, it's been a lot of really innovative, really cool stuff that's come out. I had a tough time picking best cameras in all these categories, uh, which was not the case in like 2019, 2020. It really felt like innovation had slowed down. So I feel fairly confident about it, not only because my livelihood is directly tied to it, um, 
But uh, yeah, I'm very interested in seeing how a lot of the innovations that we're seeing in terms of machine learning and stuff like that, they are going to start being added to cameras at the hardware level. And what is that actually going to look like? Uh, I think that's, you know, Sony's really changed things with the uh, global shutter in full frame. I think that's something we're going to see a lot moving forward for a specific type of work. I don't think it's going to replace everything. But uh, I do think once we start seeing, you know, a camera that understands how you like to compose and expose and the subjects that you're often photographing and actually does get better at taking the type of photography you want to do, that's going to be the next big step forward. And, you know, whichever company figures that out first is going to radically, I think, uh, expand their market share. Well, and going into the New Year's, I just also want to share a bit of a thought I've had. Um, some, something that's been going through my head a lot over the last year has been, I don't know, that, uh, that it's a bigger motivation for taking photos for me has been family photos, just family and friends, casual moments. These are not to uh, win any awards or impress anybody on Instagram. But uh, during the summer, I put together a... Um, uh, like a sort of collage video for my wife of uh, her home videos from when she was young. And the impact of looking at um, just family photos and especially videos really, but from so long ago, it is so much more significant than the feeling of looking at the beautiful sunset that you just captured last month or the cool skyline or, you know, corporate portraits or whatever it is like, taking photos of the people you care about around you really can have, uh, it can just hug on the heartstrings the way the a way that nothing else can. So I've been making a concerted effort to spend, to just have a good camera with me more often, not just shoot everything on the iPhone and get everyone's attention on a regular basis. And could be like, okay, everybody look, everybody just be in the photo, like, you know, without anybody making a dumb face. Um, and a little thought about this of like some of the challenges, sometimes if you're trying to sh like shooting, if you want to be the photographer at a family night and you want to get candids, that can make you a little more consumed in the photography for the whole night. So you're going to get a lot more bad photos, right? You have to kind of keep shooting to hopefully have something left. And that does remove you from the, the scene a bit. I'm more taking the approach of that. I don't need them to be candid. I just want to be like, look, here's, here's who was together. And this is what we were doing that night. So I'm totally happy to be like, everybody sit together and, and look at me and I'll, and I'll take a couple photos that night. And I've just, I've really enjoyed that. And it's given me more of a reason to bring a bigger camera with me at times I wouldn't otherwise. And I just want to encourage anybody else to try the same thing. It's uh it's rewarding in a very different way from, you know, aiming for the most creative award-winning photography. So just yeah. a thought, if you're looking for a project for the new year, that one has been good for me. One other thing I'd like to throw out, if you're regularly taking good pictures with a real camera, uh, just airdrop them to yourself uh, on a fairly regular basis, yes. because then they will show up in your memories. They'll be easily accessible. I have not done that enough, but uh, since we took a lot of the JPEGs that I'd used for lens testing at DP Review and we thought that was going away. I put a bunch of those family photos that I took while I was just testing gear, threw it on my phone, and now I'm getting regular updates on, uh, yeah, nice. beautiful, nice photos, uh, as opposed to just a whole bunch of smartphone images and knowing I have to drag out an old hard drive if I want to look at anything better shot and exposed. Yeah, I'd like to rem remind me, I should make, a, <laughs> I've been thinking about, I could make a video about this of like, you know, complete guide to family photos. I don't know how to title in a way that people actually click on it, but there's a lot of little things like that, that help. Like I'm trying to immediately go like download the card as soon as I get home. There's probably only 50 photos on it. There's not that much. Choose three good ones. And I export JPEGs to Dropbox and put some on my phone so that they're yeah. like easy to access. They're all in the same place. They're already JPEG. They have some simple little bit of colors added to them and I'm done with them. I don't need to go back and find the raw files. I don't need to store the hard drive. Like these photos will be accessible to me hopefully forever. Yeah. So um, thinking about that ease of workflow will make a huge difference in just how available these nicer photos are. Yeah. Good cool. call. Thanks, Jordan. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. Absolutely. It's always Same a pleasure to do this. Next year, I am going to have these categories <laughs> printed and on lockdown. You get ready. We're going to rehearse next year uh, all year long just to get ready for the best of 2024. <laughs> it's eight categories. How could I screw it up so much? It's staggering. Anyways, you know what? self-loathing is for 2024. Today is for celebration. <laughs> you did great. Thanks again, Jordan. Awesome. Talk to you later.